arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. You didn't wake me. I can see you're really busy. I'm going to be out of here in just a minute. Yeah, there's no hurry. Are you hungry? You must be. Why don't you sit and have something to eat? I uh, took the liberty of ordering everything on the menu. I didn't know what you'd like. Thanks. All right? Good. Did you sleep well? Yeah, too good. Forgot where I was. Occupational hazard? <laughs> yeah. Did you sleep? Uh, yes, a little on the couch. I was uh, working last night. You don't sleep, you don't do drugs, you don't drink, you hardly eat. What do you do, Edward? Because I know you're not a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. There are four other chairs here. Oh. So what do you do? By companies. You are listening to The Breakfast Scene with Julia Roberts and Richard Gere in the 1988 movie Pretty Woman. Gere buys companies and Roberts is a hooker, which leads into tonight's podcast. We begin a Matthias Jones mystery called The Club Max Murder, which involves one of Jones's players, Joe Sabota, who fell in love with a hooker, Gina Quintel, who was murdered. Upstairs from a Sherlock Holmes buff, Mr. Daniels, and a ditzy neighbor named Mrs. O'Toole. Jones, who is relaxing because Bucky and his sister are on vacation out of town, comes into the story when Sabota doesn't show up at football practice. We begin this story in the apartment building during the murder. The Club Max murder, ladies and gentlemen. Fitting on the air, episode one begins now. Chapter one. Daniels knew the woman was employing her nefarious trade upstairs once again. He opened his eyes in total darkness. Above him, the third-floor ceiling shook his entire apartment like the rotor blades from battlefield choppers attacking an encampment. The thumps accelerated as he rolled out of bed and reached for the lamp. He flipped the switch and his eyes ached. His carved wood pipe and gold-leaded blue-bound edition of The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, the stories he liked to read before sleeping, were strewn across his tiny bedside table. Now fatigue would follow him during his shift at the warehouse. If I ever reported the goings-on up there, there'd be serious trouble. He reached for his navy velour bathrobe as the racket persisted and he pushed his arms into the sleeves. Then he tied the robe tightly, pressed his lips together, and stepped into his fur-lined slippers. His twisted gray hair stuck up straight in the mirror. He rolled his eyes and combed his fingers through the mess. Who cares how you look, Daniels? He was going up to complain about the floozy upstairs. In the dimly lit outside hall, he planted his feet on the matted rug and peered up the varnished banister. Now the stereo bass resonated through the plaster walls. I should be calling the police. So many times I would have called the police. On the first floor, Mrs. O'Toole's door creaked open. 
She was fully dressed in an acrylic white-knit sweater and green polyester slacks. Three molded suitcases were lined up next to her door. My God, Mr. Daniel, someone is being murdered! Go back to your apartment, Mrs. O'Toole. I have the situation well in hand. You and your wild notions. Murder. You've been reading too many of those supermarket tabloids. Get back inside. She trudged up the vinyl stair treads. Not in your life. I can hear that pounding all the way to the first floor. Why, couldn't you hear it earlier too, Mr. Daniels? I couldn't, because I was sleeping. I was sleeping, and I do put that in the past tense, madam. Was sleeping. Who are you calling a madam? Daniels ground his teeth and tried not to look at her as they climbed to the third floor. Proper address, Mrs. O'Toole, proper address. Well, you should have done something about that woman a long time ago. I hear she's living a wild life, said Mrs. O'Toole, pushing her index finger into his arm. Why me? Why me? Daniel stopped on the stairs as the clatter, now only a half a flight up, persisted. She wears those miniskirts in those knee-high boots. Mrs. O'Toole, she is a lady of the evening, a Club Max hooker. Step out of your naive existence and see the real world. He trotted up ahead of her and tightened his bathrobe loop once again. The sound of a man crying drifted down the stairs along with the woman's usual seductive perfume. As angry as he was, he hoped she was not in trouble. He tiptoed across the worn hallway carpet and through the open doorway. Within the stereo's jazz music, the wailing mixed with a steady banging on the floor. Quietly and slowly, he inched his way over the green shag rug near the bathroom. White bookshelves extended from the wall, separating the front room from the hall, and he saw long strands of auburn hair through the stacks. He cautiously peered around the corner. A strapping young man Daniels recognized as one of her frequent visitors knelt and rocked her bloody body in his wide arms. His face was contorted, tears smeared over his moistened cheeks, and he repeatedly called out a name. Gina, Gina. Oh, my God, said Daniels, his hand shaking as he realized the woman was indeed dead. What the hell have you done, young man? No, no, shouted the young man, his eyes wide as he looked up at Daniels. He quickly let the woman slide onto the rug and he leaped to his feet. Panic overtook his face when he glanced at the body and then rumbled like a steer out of the pen. Daniels jumped aside as the young man agilely darted past Mrs. O'Toole and then cascaded down the stairs. "'What's going on in there, Mr. Daniels?' she asked loudly. "'Nothing, nothing, Mrs. O'Toole. Stay back, please.' He attempted to remain calm, retreated, and abruptly escorted her into the dimly lit hallway. "'Why are you pushing me?' She broke free and stomped inside. Her high-pitched scream only added to the confusion— Murder! I knew it was murder! I warned you, Mrs. O'Toole. I'm calling the police. Daniels galloped downstairs to his own apartment. Mrs. O'Toole's lamenting continued outside as he scrambled to his bedside phone. He placed his finger on the emergency police number. 
Something loud erupted in the back alley as he called the police station. He pulled the twisted phone cord to the window as the young man from upstairs, seated on a motorcycle, spun onto Atlantic Ave. PWPD, this call is being recorded. Officer Crimmins speaking. Murder, there has been a murder. Apartment, oh God, I'm drawing a blank. Slow down, sir, slow down. Where are you calling from? Daniels cleared his throat and spoke slowly. Charles B. Daniels, Covington Arm Apartments, corner of Covington and Atlantic, in Prince William. Who has been murdered, Mr. Daniels? The woman upstairs. I think her name was Quintel. Her boyfriend just ran out. You saw him? I assure you I have noted and will note every detail of this case. Big athletic young man. Looked like a football player. Left on his motorcycle down Atlantic Ave. South. He went south. His name is Joe, said Mrs. O'Toole from the doorway. Daniels turned, squinting his eyes. She annoyed him every minute she was with him. I have a lady here who said his name was Joe. Joe what, Mrs. O'Toole? Well, I don't know his last name. Last name, please. Oh, for God's sakes, Mrs. O'Toole. What good is a first name? repeated Crimmins. No, I'm sorry, officer. He mustered a sharp grimace for Mrs. O'Toole's benefit. We do not have a name. He was a tall, big frame, big face, brown hair, thick. The case would be cut and dry. Driving a motorcycle? said Crimmins. Yes, yes, driving a motorcycle. Okay, we have people on the way. Does anyone require medical help? She needs a psychiatrist. Mrs. O'Toole opened her mouth and folded her arms tightly across her sweater. What was that, sir? Nothing, nothing. We're all right here. Personnel are on the way, Mr. Daniels. Stay away from the murder scene. Touch nothing. Daniels hung up. They said to touch nothing, Mrs. O'Toole. Well, the taxi is picking me up. I'm supposed to be at the airport in a half an hour to catch the red eye to Arizona. Well, they'll want to question you. But I'm going to Arizona. Daniel shook his head as she left. Doesn't know his last name. Unbelievable. Chapter 2 Today's practice reminded him of his gray-haired dad sitting in the stands with Aunt May back in Wabash Falls during the Benton game. Bill Jones always had the same advice for his son before a game. Hit him and hit him hard. Jones and his boys beat Benton 46 to nothing, and it was the last time he saw his father alive. Jones zipped his red parker and trailed his assistant coach out the locker room door. The colder fall air stung his face as he panned the bright foliage, lining the practice field to the Shaker-style conservatory adjacent to this five-story brick library. With St. Pat's and Hamilton both undefeated, Jones was determined to push his team today. Only one squad would emerge in first place after Saturday's contest. Come on, boys. On Saturday, you have to hit him. You have to hit him and hit him hard. He turned to his right. Woozy whiz, Joe Sabota. Well, I didn't see him, Matthias, answered his wavy-haired assistant. Or his motorcycle, but I do have good news for you. Oh, yeah, what's the good news, Woozy? Bucky and Muriel landed in Florida about an hour ago. Jones's head snapped to the right. A slow smile came to his face. So you're telling me Bucky Driscoll is 1,000 miles away from this college? Or more. He told Nigel he's going to the circus. 
Yeah, well, maybe he'll run away with the circus. Jones stretched his arm skyward. I feel like I'm the one on vacation. No butting in, no campus parking tickets. As far as Joe goes, I can call his dorm. Have one of the boys go check the dorm. Joe's usually the first one on the field. Since the whole world thinks I'm going to run against St. Pat's, I need to keep Joe practicing the long ball. What an arm on that kid, Woozy. Jones trotted by the leaf-strewn baseball field onto the lime grids of the adjacent football practice field. Max says Joe's a brick wall. He's been watching videos of all our games. Look, Woos, Mac and I are friends, but we're competitors, too. And I won't let St. Pat's win this division. He isn't expecting Joe to pass. We've run for the past five weeks. They reached the upper practice field, rim with red and yellow maples. Leo Crowley, his thick beard rusty in the afternoon sunshine, dragged an olive team equipment bag across the grass. Hey, what do you say, Leo? Leo's stocky frame filled his red and black Hamilton College windbreaker. Coach, Arnie Dewis. Oh, boy. Just heard a rumor from his sister in Prince William. She talked to her friend who's a cop on the Prince William Force. Excuse me, Leo. One second, Woozy. Let's get them warmed up and then we'll run some basic stuff. Let's get somebody over to that dorm. Woozy spoke to Calvin Williams, who nodded and ran back toward the college. Are you going live today, coach? asked Leo. I think I will. Jones looked past the baseball field's chain-link fence to the locker room door. To his right, Larson Stadium was empty and draped in the shadows below the town atop the hill. He wondered why Joe was late for practice. Where the hell is Joe Sabota? So I'm trying to tell you, coach. Arnie says they're holding some kid for murder at the Prince William Police Station, some kid with a motorcycle. Jones spun around. Leo, if Arnie Dewis told you this, consider the source. He seemed pretty sure. If you're implying Joe is over the Prince William Police Station, then just forget it. Arnie's sister said the rumor was all over town. Rumor. I don't believe it, especially if Arnie had anything to do with it. Jones walked with Leo along the sidelines. Leo, when Joe finally gets here, I'm thinking of letting him pass. No running game on Saturday. What do you think? I've always thought Joe should pass more, Coach. Won't be expected, will it? Nope. Kid's the most natural athlete I ever saw. Jones nodded as Woozy brought the team through calisthenics, accompanied by a loud, verbal cadence. The sunlight filtered through the half-bare maples, producing a yellow glow through the wide leaves. A shiny black, low rider rolled along the outside fence. Jones thought he saw a pair of binoculars in the open passenger window. He turned back to the team as the boys went through simple line and passing drills. He waved his assistant coach over. Woozy, holding his clipboard, ran across from the line. Coach, you want me to start some plays? What I want, Woozy, is Joe Sabota out on this field. This is a critical game on Saturday said Jones, rubbing his numbed hands together. Calvin Williams gave the thumbs-down sign as he ran back to the practice field. Nobody's seen Joe, coach. Thanks, Calvin. Get back with the team. The low rider's tinted window moved upward, and the car looped around the fence opening. That low rider keeps going back and forth along the fence. What's going on here? I need Joe out here practicing. He's the backbone of this team. I can't use little Larry Resnick against the St. Pat's line. 
Oresnek and Sabota hate each other, said Leo. I'm not going to base strategy on who does or does not like somebody else. Jones pressed his lips. On second thought, Leo, check the locker room for Joe, will you? You want me to call the Prince William Police Station? Will you stop with the police station business? Jones shook his head and watched the team. Arnie has everybody all revved up. Leo, just track Joe down. Got it, coach. As the large-framed Leo trundled across the lower field to the gymnasium locker room, the low rider's engine rumbled like a truck along the fence. Jones glanced over his shoulder and approached the team. All right, you guys, we're going live. I need Resnick at quarterback. Woozy opened his mouth. The thin-frame Resnick, a broadcaster at the campus radio station, ran across the field. His shoulder pads were askew, and he squinted his blue eyes in the sunshine. He looked perplexed as his breath steamed into the colder air. You want me a quarterback? What about Joe? Sabota isn't here. I'm sure you can see that. Larry, I want you to run through the plays at quarterback until he gets here. Resnick smiled. Thanks, coach. Wait a minute, wait a minute, said Jones, holding his arm. Don't think I'm starting you on Saturday. Joe's going to be the starting quarterback. Just because you two don't get along, I don't want any problems. Oh, we get along okay. Yeah, right. Just don't rub it in his face when he gets here. The low rider pulled away from the fence toward Hamilton Street. I understand, coach. You're pretty good on the campus radio station, Larry. You have to prove yourself on the field. I will, I will. All right, let's try the long yardage game, Jones called out. We have no linebacker, said Woozy, looking across the field. Just put anybody in there. This is an offensive drill, Woozy. As Jones stood back, Woozy dragged a large kid named Busey from the sidelines. Again, Jones faced the distant locker room. He was worried about Joe. Something wasn't right, and Leo's rambling about a kid being held for murder shook him. Resnick ran the long yardage play, but he bobbled the ball. Jones held back any criticism. The cold weather impaired a firm grip on the ball. Resnick scrambled quickly from the next snap, but his pass was at least 15 yards shot of Joe's easiest toss. The orange sun lingered within the steel-blue clouds behind the sinewy branches as the colder air sunk across the valley. Leo was unable to locate Joe Sabota. Joe's friends and arrogant roommate had checked out the dorm and campus center, but Leo actually called the police station, yet no one would answer his questions. I say the cops weren't cooperative, Coach. Like they were deliberately holding something back, and Joe's roommate, well, he was downright hostile, told me to mind my own business. I'm just trying to pretend that Joe being missing and the report from the Prince William Police Station are not related, said Jones. His players were tired from two hours of grueling contact. Arnie Dewey's blue lumber truck squeaked along to a stop by the chain-link fence. Oh no, this is the last thing I need is to listen to Arnie Dewey's. Hey, Matthias! Jones realized he was trapped in his blue-striped Dewey shirt Minus a jacket or hat, Arnie ran through the street gate. He continuously pushed his black-rimmed glasses up his oversized nose. Matthias! What can I do for you, Arnie? We're trying to wrap things up here. Your boy! He's in big trouble! How do you know this? Arnie shivered and then elbowed Jones in the ribs. Can't keep track of your own players, huh? Do you have definitive information on Joe Sabota? Arnie's hands shook as he lit a cigarette, 
Man, it's cold here. God. Don't you believe in hats and jackets, Arnie? Ah, jackets are for wimps. His hand shook as he inhaled the cigarette. Man, it's colder than a witch's. Arnie, what did you hear about Joe Sabota? See, my sister, she knows guys on the force. They brought in some kid on a motorcycle. Did they specifically say they brought in Joe Sabota? Well, Arnie pushed his finger into Jones's shoulder. Scared you're going to lose the big game, huh? So in other words, you know nothing. Hey, don't blame me. You centered your whole game around one guy. Did anybody ever tell you you're a pain? It's my uh, modus operandus. Operandi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Arnie's phone sounded. Hey, yeah, Buckster. How's the beach bum? And how's the uh, chick situation down there? Jones rolled his eyes. I have to go, Arnie. Okay, Matthias. Yeah? What? Oh, no, he's right here, Bucky. Jones took two steps toward the team, and then he turned. Wait. Arnie, give me the phone. Arnie handed the phone to Jones. Jones ripped off the back casing and threw the battery on the grass. Hey, 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 hey. Get this straight, Arnie. Do not mention anything about any kid being held at the Prince William police station to Bucky. So, you knew I was right about Prince William, he said, picking up the battery. Just covering my bases. You keep your mouth shut, Arnie. What's it worth to you? Jones stepped up to Arnie. I'll make sure Dewars never sells a stick of lumber to this college. I don't need Bucky Driscoll in my business, even from a thousand miles away. The sun sank below the library roof. Jones checked his watch and then removed his cell from his parka pocket. He scrolled down to Don Pacheco's private number at the Prince William Police Station. The number clicked and the line rang as Arnie's loud voice filled the air. Hey, Leo, why don't you get out on the field and work off some of that blubber? Jones faced Arnie and raised his voice. You shut your mouth. Excuse me? This is Matthias Jones. Matthias, I don't think I can talk to you. Krim, is that you? Matthias, listen, I can't talk right now. This is... Why not? A familiar gravelly voice stung in his ear. Jones, as I have told you many times in the past, stay out of this and let the police do their job. Herbert Lane, and what do I owe the honor of actually speaking with our illustrious district attorney? Stay out of it, Jones. Stay out of what? The phone bounced on the other end, and Jones held the cell phone away from his ear. Arnie inched closer. Hey, Herbert! Herbert! Another gruff voice cackled through the speaker. Jones, this is Kip Bosco. Oh, our man in vice. <laughs> You're a coach who thinks he's a private investigator. We have the situation here completely under control. Bosco breathed heavily as if he were gasping for air. It's Joe Sabota being held over there. Where's Don Pacheco? Chief is downstairs. His voice tapered away like a passing train. Yeah, yeah, with extra cheese and fries. Everything on it. And a chocolate milkshake. I'll pay you when you get back. Is Sabota over there? Arnie leaned forward. Get out of here, Arnie. Hey, why don't you hit the showers, Kochi? The line went dead and Jones stared at the phone. Arnie pretended to zip his lips. Don't say it, Arnie. Hey, the trap is closed. Well, that's a first. He redialed Don Pacheco's number, but it instantly kicked into voicemail. 
he walked up to Woozy. What's the story, Matthias? Wooz, I think Saboter is over the PWPD. What are you going to do? Finish special teams and then bring him in. I'm heading to Prince William. I'll call you. Keep this hush. Hush. He looked over at Arnie. Arnie looked away. Will do. Will do. Jones nodded and stepped forward and blew his brass whistle. And as if someone had pulled a power plug, the team finished the line drill. Jones moved directly up to the group. Okay, guys, good practice. Coach will finish up with special teams. Listen to me. Saturday, we're up against a good team, and I don't have to tell you boys what this victory means. It means that only one team will emerge as the probable champion, he said, increasing the intensity of his voice. But they aren't practicing live like you boys. You're a tough team, you're a fast team, and you will stop that line, and you will outrun the defense because you boys have pride. Pride in your school and pride in yourself. Let's do it. Jones high-fived each one of them as they cheered. To his right, Travis Thayer, in his wool coat and leather gloves, walked briskly from the music conservatory on the top of the hill behind the practice fields. He wore a Russian fur hat and a beige cashmere scarf around his neck. But Jones's mind was set in Prince William, a mental snapshot of the round Herbert Lane with his ill-fitting toupee filled Jones's thoughts, and he kicked the dirt. Are you practicing your field goals, Matthias? Travis had a clear, refined voice. I'm here to remind you about the uh, faculty meeting in the auditorium tonight. Jones looked into his dark eyes. That's right, I forgot about that meeting. Nigel told me about it this morning. I don't think I can go. Well, Nigel is the president of the college now. He wants everybody in there in case Hamilton Fletcher decides to show up and listen to the annual reports. And remember, the Fletchers fund this college and everything else in this town. I'm heading to Prince William. Travis gazed across the practice field. Is the dream team turning into a nightmare? Jones smiled at his wit. It will if I can't find Joseph Boder. It's not like him to miss practice. I'm starting to think there's been trouble. Oh, I think I know what happened. You do? Asked Jones, looking into his brilliant brown eyes. His auburn hair was neatly trimmed. I believe he's broken up with Miss Wonderful. I spoke with him after class yesterday morning. English is his forte and his grades have plummeted lately. Apparently he's seeing a girl in Prince William. He is. Nobody tells me anything. Oh, for crying out loud, how many times have I told these guys that women in sports don't mix? You know, now that you mention it, the kid looked exhausted. When you chase women, you pay the price. Has that come from personal experience, Travis? His perfectly formed white teeth flashed a momentary smile as if he were recalling some distant affair. I will make no comment, lest I ruin my image. Well, your image is intact. Well, the girl called it quits a few days ago, said Travis as he thought. He was quite upset, according to the scuttlebutt. They want me to be a coach, but I've got to be a psychiatrist. Resnick and Sabota hate each other. Sabota is out chasing some girl in Prince William. Whatever happened to Marlena Peterson? Their on-again, off-again relationship is quite finite. Thias, you don't keep up with the college social scene. I can't keep track of my own problems, Travis. Any idea where this woman lives in Prince William? Bosco's slobbery voice from Dom's office kept repeating in his mind like an offensive commercial on TV. He prayed Joe had not done anything stupid. 
Well, Joe's uh, roommate, Clarence Moody. Moody knows. Moody's obnoxious and a thorn in Joe's side. More scuttlebutt? No, that's a private matter. Well, I have to go to Prince William. Why don't you tag along? As long as we're back for the meeting. Yeah, sure. What's so important in Prince William? I do believe, Travis, that Joe Sabota is behind bars. Jones called George Strickland at the Hamilton police station. The line ran quickly. Hamilton, Ned speaking. Nettie, is George there? He's out. Well, where is he? Don't know. Great. I'm trying to find out if one of my players is being held in Prince William. Don't know. Can anybody call Prince William PD? Don't know. Well, is Wendell there? The phone dropped on the counter and Jones pulled his cell away from his ear. He shook his head as Travis smiled. Didn't Ned tell you it was me? Matthias? Wendell, I think my quarterback is being held at the Prince William Police Station. Oh yeah, he sure is. Well, nice of you to tell me. You never asked. Well, where's George? Well, I don't know that either. Tell George, wherever he is, that I'm driving to the PWPD right now. Oh, for Joe Sabota? Yes, Wendell, for Joe Sabota. Jones held out the cell phone and stared into Travis's brown eyes. Travis, why did I leave Indiana? Chapter 3 Did you actually speak to a police officer, Matthias? Well, I spoke to Bosco, said Jones, shifting. Kip always has an attitude. A Bosco is an idiot. Jones nodded and turned up the radio. Larry Resnick's voice filled the darkened jeep. Good evening, I'm Larry Resnick, and this is the Larry Resnick Show. My starting quarterback. <laughs> you got on the air real quick, said Jones. We'll be taking calls tonight on the death of a Prince William woman and the arrest of football star Joe Sabota. What the hell is he doing? yelled Jones. Resnick just announced Sabota's arrest, George. Thias, last time I looked, we lived in the United States of America. This isn't a news blackout. Probably on all the stations. Not one of my players. Hold on, George. I'll call you back. Jones punched in more digits into his phone. Well, who are you calling now? Asked Travis. The station. I'll nix this thing right away. The line rang as Jones stared across the murky outlines of the quarries at the crest of the Devonshire Hills. W-H-M-T. Answered a young woman. This is Matthias Jones. I want to speak with Larry Resnick right now. I'm sorry, Coach. Uh, he's on the air. Well, get him off the air. Put a commercial on. I don't care. One moment, please. Syrupy elevator music pinged over the speakers. Joe doesn't need this. Matthias, let it settle, said Travis. People talk. I deal with it all the time. Larry Resnick. Larry, what the hell are you doing? I don't want this thing about Joe smeared all over God's creation. Come on, it sounds like you're prosecuting and convicting him on the air. Well, Coach, we're just discussing it. Everybody's discussing it. It's unbelievable what happened. I'm just concerned about Joe and this whole mess. Please. Okay, okay, I have to get back on the air. Travis glanced at Jones, and Jones lowered the radio volume as the public service commercials ended. This is Larry Resnick. We'll listen to more cool jazz from New Orleans and then switch to some sports talk in the next few minutes. Bear with me, folks. 
We'll get through the night. He tightened his face as he called back Strickland. George, this is ridiculous. Strickland's phone was now on the speaker. Let's face facts, Matthias. Joe Sabota is being held in Prince William for murdering a hooker. His girlfriend, last night. Jones wondered how Joe Sabota could be driven to kill anybody. All thoughts of the game on Saturday, winning or even playing, vanished with Strickland's pronouncement. I'm sorry, I know how much you like the kid, and I know what a gifted athlete he is. You're also looking for Coco Stefani. Joseph Boder isn't a murderer. Where's Coco? What's he got to do with this? Well, I can't find him. When did this murder take place? It happened yesterday, or maybe last night, said Wendell in the background. Matthias, I've been on the horn to Clayton. He said the girl was killed around 8 o'clock last night. Here's to her order. Yeah, there was blood everywhere. Wendell. Jones gripped the wheel. His best player, playing football every day, was betting down a Prince William hooker by night. Joe had broken up with his girlfriend on campus, according to Travis. Jones wondered if ending the relationship with Marlena Peterson had resulted in murder. Are you sure she was a hooker, George? I find that incredulous. Yeah, and hard to believe, said Wendell. No, it's true. Sabota's roommate, a uh, Clarence Moody, claims Joe left the dorm before seven. The roommate was very evasive and very pushy. That's what Leo Crowley told us. Is he a suspect? asked Jones. Who, Leo? asked Wendell. No, the roommate, Wendell. No, we don't know that, said Strickland. Sounds evasive enough. As far as Joe goes, the girl was murdered last night and they found Joe locked inside some Boston hotel room. Boston? What was he doing in Boston? asked Jones. Running away. Jones turned to Travis. Travis, what did you say about Joe breaking up with his girlfriend? Jones stopped at a traffic light near the station. Well, she told me she said it was over and he was devastated by the news. Devastated enough to kill her? No, I would say Joe was more despondent than anything else. I wouldn't describe him as angry at any level. We're almost there, George, said Jones, pulling away from the light. I've had enough speculation. I want to speak with Joe directly. Joe's one of my favorite students. I can't see him killing anyone. George, where are the witnesses? Did anyone see Joe kill this woman? Oh, they have witnesses. Two witnesses. Jones pulled across the street from the large Prince William police station. Sabota is the last person I'd expect to be held for murder. Chapter 4 Jones locked the jeep and the cell phone sounded in his pocket. He pulled out the cell as he and Travis crossed the busy Prince William Street. George? Ah, hey, you need my help? Asked Bucky with organ music playing in the background. Bucky? What the hell? I'll kill that Arnie Doers. Huh? What are you saying? Muriel said you had a big game against St. Pat's on Saturday. You better change your strategy, coach. You've made mistakes before, and your job is on the line, I know that. You need help. The organ music squelched his voice. Man, that organ is loud. Then maybe you should get a new tin cup for your monkey act. Jones cut the call. Bucky Driscoll. Driscoll tried to tow my car last month, said Travis. He said I didn't have the proper faculty sticker on my windshield. My God, he said as they crunched the autumn leaves scattered on the station's stone steps. A tow truck could ruin my vehicle. I made two calls, one to Nigel Kent and one to L.G. Bentley. Driscoll took a call on his cell phone and I never saw him again.
Jones grinned and pushed open the oak precinct doors. He grit his teeth and looked up the stairs toward the homicide offices on the second floor. Through the constant chatter, he crossed the spacious downstairs area, and a myriad of thoughts filled his head. He wondered if the black lowrider was related to the hooker's murder, and how did Joe get involved with the hooker anyway? Strickland stood at the front desk with Krim and several Prince William police officers in blue uniforms behind the counter. Krim, Thias, Professor Thayer. Jones turned to the square-jawed Crimmins. Krim, can we speak to Sabota? And I'd like to speak with Dom, said Strickland. Well, if he's still here, George. The officer turned and lifted a heavy black phone off the nearest desk. Sabota being held here is insane, said Jones. I want the details on this thing. Hold on, Matthias, hold on, said Krim, raising his index finger. Joe isn't a murderer. That's the bottom line. Krim listened on the phone and nodded before he hung up. It's late. Dom's gone home, guys. Then we talked to Kevin Phillips. Kevin is out. You'll have to talk with Sergeant Bosco before speaking with Sabota. Oh, Bosco is a moron. Oh, then you know, Kip, laughed Krim. What does he know about Sabota and this hooker? Well, you'll have to ask him. Krim looked at the second floor stairs. George, bring them right up to Homicide. I'll send up Bosco. Thanks, Krim answered Strickland. Jones moved with Travis across the station and started up the stairs. Travis held his forearm. Slow down, Matthias. Let's take this one step at a time. Well, everything is all fouled up, Travis, said Jones, turning at the landing. We don't need Kip Bosco in this. Corruption is his middle name. What about Joe's parents? He's from Michigan, right? And over Michigan, said Jones, scaling the stairs. He led every one of his teams to state championships his senior year. Three great years at Hamilton, and now this. Well, we'll have to ask Bosco if the parents have been contacted, said Travis. I can't believe this is happening to a young man like Joe. Well, I'll second that, said Jones, waiting at the top of the smooth marble stairs. Although he dreaded seeing Joe under these circumstances, he knew Joe needed support to survive these accusations. Not knowing anything about this case troubled Jones, and he needed facts. At this point, he could not even formulate a side-road theory. Strickland stepped up to an older woman with pressed lips, typing on a keyboard. We're here for Sergeant Bosco. What did he do now? Nothing, said Strickland, appearing in the doorway. I just need to talk to him. Well, I'll get him. The woman swung her nimble frame from the swivel chair, faced the back office, and barked like a raspy drill sergeant. Kip! Kip! People want to see you! Strickland handed Jones a summary report. Jones leaned on a faded green filing cabinet and stroked his chin as for several minutes he ran through the description of the murder. Two witnesses actually observed Joe holding the dead woman, and the fact that Joe fled to Boston put a cloud over his star player's claims of innocence. In the back office, he heard someone coughing. The overweight mustached Bosco, with disheveled sandy red hair, strutted through the doorway. He wore a maroon blazer stained at the upper pocket, and his yellow paisley tie, loosened at the neck, followed the curve of his round belly over his solid blue shirt. A smoldering cigarette butt was stuck between his cracked lips, and his eyelids hung heavy. He balanced the cigarette in his yellow teeth and raised his bushy brows as he spoke. Jones sniffed a potent cologne. Jones, I'm so honored. He took a drag on the cigarette. And the police chief of that hick little town of Hamilton. The sticks. 
Shut up, Kip, said Strickland. I suppose you're here about that Sabota kid. Jones stepped forward, brushing Kip's cushioned belly. I want the medical examiner's report. And who the hell are you, smart boy? The coach who thinks he's a private investigator? Matthias has my stamp of approval. Whoa, big whoop! Bosco laughed again, and Jones fought his anger as he tried to concentrate on Joe's problems. He moved right up to the red-faced Bosco. Where is Joe? Well, your football hero's got himself in deep doo-doo. <laughs> what was Joe doing linking up with some hooker? asked Jones. Hey, she found uh, the kid, you know, and uh, you know how it goes, Coachy. <laughs> no, I don't know how it goes. I knew she had a relationship with him, but she never stopped turning tricks either. <laughs> the woman was gorgeous, tall, long brown hair, slim with all the right proportions. She had a set of... That's great, Kip. But how did she find a Hamilton College football player? Was she on campus? I don't know anything about that. Kip forward his brow and his fat face compressed into a confused expression as he thought. Then he raised his index finger. I know they were at Club Max all the time. I suppose they met in there. Club Max? Club Max is across town, Jones. I know where it is, Kip. On River Street, about a mile from the Crosstown Bridge, said Kip, not listening. Jones thought he was drunk. Hang out for low life. They get in my way, I just beat them up. <laughs> you beat them up, Jones grinned. That I'd like to see. Hey, you're asking for it, Coachy. So you think that's where he met the woman, asked Travis. If there's a place to meet a hooker, that's the place. <laughs> Coco Stefani know what you said about his place? Kip's eyes opened wide. How do you know Coco? Why don't you ask Coco how he knows me? Who do I talk to at Club Max? You don't. I think a place like that might be a little tough for you, Jones. Jones moved closer. Listen, Kip. You let me worry about Club Max. Now, who do I talk to? I don't know nothing. Well, I'll second that, said Strickland. You want to see the kid now? Yeah, it's about time, said Jones. Have Sabota's parents been notified? Yeah, Pachinko talked to them earlier. They already left Detroit. They're pretty torqued off. Well, that is certainly understandable, sir. Yeah, and who the hell are you? Some kind of prof from the college? Oh, I am. I'm Travis Thayer. I never heard of you. Everybody knows Travis. He's a writer, Kip, said Jones. Yeah, so what? You know, you're a pain in the ass. Ha, ha, ha. You're funny, Coachy. So what do you think about all this, Kip? Asked Strickland. I told you guys, I don't know nothing. Kip put out a cigarette in one of the desk coffee cups. The woman at the computer pursed her lips, and then Kip dragged his polyester pants higher up over his stomach. Tell you guys right now, the kid is off the wall. He claims he didn't do it, but we got witnesses. Lieutenant Phillips talked to both of them. Well, who are the witnesses? Hey, Joan, you're starting to piss me off. Well, I'll mention that to Coco, too, when I talk to him. Bosco's face flattened again. For your info, and I know you're taking this all in, a guy named Daniels, he thinks he's a P.I. like you do, lived right below the dead woman. Gina Quintel. I read the report. Kip waddled to the repainted yellow elevator doors. He pushed the button and everybody piled inside. Gina Quintel, right out of a dime novel, said Travis. 
Dime? What do you mean, dime? asked Kip. Jones was uncomfortably pinned between Kip and the panel wall. The elevator doors closed unevenly and the car rumbled downward. Kip turned to Strickland and moved his pudgy, freckled hands as he spoke. Another lady at the apartment complex, a Mrs. O'Toole. She saw quite a bit, but she split to Arizona on vacay. Jones spoke over his shoulder. Listen, Kip, I know your next question, Jones. Where are the apartments? Covington Arms, corner of Lincoln and Atlantic. Quintel was up on the third floor, apartment 17. Sabota's football number, said Jones, shaking his head. The elevator rumbled past the first floor and into the basement. The doors opened to exposed pipes, peeling beige paint on the corridor bricks in an intense urine odor. This is where we keep them on ice. <laughs> this is more like a barnyard, said Travis. Said Travis. His fine wool coat was a marked contrast to the deteriorating basement. This is disgusting. How can you keep human beings down here? Well, we call it home. <laughs> He led them under a row of faded green metal shaded lights hanging on chains from the cracked plaster ceiling. Upon seeing the stained ceramic urinals and ripped mattresses inside the cells, Jones wanted to get Joe out. In only 24 hours, Joe Sabota had gone from football hero to accused murderer. Jones gripped his cell phone. Coco, you need to call me. I've got a player at the PWPD who was with some woman named Gina Quintel that he met at the club. He stuffed the phone in his parker pocket, and then he looked ahead. Across a whitewashed brick wall, Bosco unlocked a metal-barred cell door. Jones, a star football player, now wore an orange prisoner jumpsuit and sat with his head in his hands on the mattress. First, he seemed unaware that everyone had arrived. Then he slowly raised his large, sloping forehead. But when he saw Jones, he quickly closed his eyes and turned away. I brought these people in from Hamilton, kid, said Kip. Tell them your sad story. Joe spun around and Jones was surprised by his anger. You shut up, Kip. Hey, watch it, punk. No, you watch it, said Jones, facing the oversized cop. You've been giving me grief all afternoon, Kip. Well, you're not a cop, Jones. I told you he's with me, said Strickland. Kip mumbled and stepped back, looking at Jones as he squeezed out of the cell and lit a cigarette. Where's Lieutenant Phillips, Kip? asked Joe. He stood abruptly, glancing between Kip and Jones. He's out on patrol, said Kip, and he smiled at Jones. Something real cops do all the time. Shut up, Kip, Joe yelled again. Joe's abrasive and loud tone bordered on defiant. At six foot four, 230 pounds, he maintained an upright stance. Jones had never seen him this wild. Someone is doing a good job of framing me, coach. Joe's relationship with a hooker also had Jones baffled. The pain in Joe's eyes intensified as he looked over at Travis. He turned away quickly, put his foot up on the mattress, and leaned his elbow on his knee. Travis stepped forward and stood behind him before he spoke. Did you do it, Joe? He kept his back to Travis. His black hair was matted in clumps, sweat beaded on his neck and forehead, and his well-defined cheeks were crimson. I didn't kill anyone. Okay, said Jones. Oh, great, I'll just let him go then. <laughs> Alternately, Joe would clench his hands until the knuckles whitened. In a sudden burst of emotion, he twisted and moved up to Travis. Mr. Thayer, I, I didn't kill anyone. 
Then he locked his arms around the aristocratic Travis. Travis remained stiff, but slowly raised his arm to the huge football player's back. It's all right, Joe. It's all right. I loved Gina. I loved her. He faced Kip and Jones. I'm not a murderer. I wouldn't kill anybody, especially Gina. Oh, we have witnesses, kid, said Kip from the hall. You stop taunting me, Kip. Joe stumped forward. Just shut your mouth. Jones blocked Joe's path and held his shoulders. Don't let him get to you, Joe. Kip attempted to pull out his gun, but soon discovered it was not in his shoulder strap. You watch yourself there, kid. I don't know what the hell you're doing in here anyways, Kip. It's like having the wolf in the sheep's pasture. Tell him, Kip. Tell him how you hung out with every hooker in Prince William. You're a vice cop. Why don't you go arrest yourself? Huh, you say you didn't do it, but you sure seem like a guy who's feeling pretty guilty right now. <laughs> Kip laughed, but his face dropped when he saw Jones staring at him. Get him out of here, coach. Just get him out of here, shouted Joe. That man is dangerous. Why don't you beat it, Kip? Strickland leaned closer. Kip, give us time to... Kip, time to give us some privacy. Yeah, yeah, I'll be right by the elevator. He turned and shuffled down the cement corridor floor. But don't try anything. Ah, or he'll beat us up, said Jones. Strickland smiled and stepped outside the cell door. I'll be right out here, Matthias. Kip Bosco. A man with no gun. I feel real safe now, said Jones, looking toward Kip down the brick-lined corridor. Perhaps he was going to shoot us with his finger, said Travis. Joe's mournful, bloodshot eyes slid away from Jones. Coach, I'm so sorry. I know you're counting on me Saturday against St. Pat's. Forget St. Pat's, Joe. You're up on murder charges. I didn't do it. I told Clarence that. Clarence is your roommate. Yes, I called him. He was in here earlier. I was told he was evasive and arrogant. Do you think he had anything to do with this? Joe's face went blank. Then he furrowed his brow. Clarence is a very strange kind of guy. I don't know. I don't know anything at this point. Travis turned with his hands in his coat pocket. I know Clarence Moody. He's very bright. Then he knew all about this. Well, not until this afternoon. What's your relationship with that bozo, Bosco? You act like you know him. I I'm sorry, coach. He fell back onto the bed and cried into his hands. I'm just so sorry. Joe, you have to let me know what's going on here. It's the only way I can do anything. Joe looked up. I know Kip Bosco because he was in Vice and Gina was a hooker. All right? Then she was a hooker, said Jones, glancing at Travis and Strickland out in the corridor. What are you saying? You picked up a hooker. No, no, it's not that simple. Right after we won the first game, a whole bunch of us came over to Prince William to celebrate. We ended up at Club Max and started drinking. Joe, you don't need to be hanging out at Club Max. Jeez. We go out all the time, coach. Different places. Doesn't matter. Was this guy Clarence with you? Well, Clarence was probably doing his tricks or studying in the library or watching an avant-garde movie at the Cornucopia. Jones nodded. So tell me about this little excursion to Club Max. Well, it was late and I wasn't drunk. I only had a couple of beers, coach. I went up to get some beer for the rest of the guys. You can tell me later who was with you, said Jones. What about Gina Quintel? That's when I saw her. She was at the bar pinching a cigarette between her fingers. I can still see the smoke rising into the blue light. 
The speakers were pumping out some disco song from the 70s. Her brown hair was perfectly straight to her shoulders. She wore this low-cut dress. You could see... Never mind, said Jones as Travis's eyes opened wide. I just started talking to her. You mean she started talking to you? No, but she was giving me this look. I knew she might be a, a, a hooker or something. She just looked so beautiful. Just a touch of mascara and that strongly scented perfume. I asked her something dumb like, where do you live? Something like that. Then she asked me to sit down. I told her I had to bring the beer back to my buddies. I asked her to stay right there. I couldn't believe she wanted to be with me. So, so I brought the beer to the guys and then I practically sprinted to the bar. Joe closed his eyes. Jones tried to measure all his reactions. He still was not sure whether Joe killed Gina Quintel. When you got back to the bar, said Travis, is that when she propositioned you? No, Mr. Thayer, she never propositioned me. I went back where she was waiting. She wasn't some cheap tramp. Well, was she a hooker or wasn't she, asked Jones. Yeah, answered Joe, but I found that out later. But she wanted to get out of being a hooker. Her pimp always took a big chunk of change. Her pimp, said Jones. There's all kinds of rumors about Coco. Coco, he's the owner of Club Max, asked Travis. Jones nodded his head. Strickland leaned in from the cell door. He has mob connections down south, Travis. Yeah, and he knows some rough people here in Prince William, said Joe. Joe, I've always told you that sports and women don't mix, but this goes way beyond that. His eyes were wet. She wasn't what you think. Okay, but we still didn't do anything that night. We just talked. She was a smart girl. Jones fought his anger at Joe's stupidity and inability to judge people. We talked until the place closed down. And then you went back to her place, right? Asked Jones. Yeah. I told the guys I'd find my way back to Hamilton. All right, I get the picture. Look, I'm working on posting Bond here and getting you out. And your parents, they're flying in from Michigan. I know, I know, he said, setting his jaw. Coach, you have to get me out of this. I'm going to be over here bright and early. I'll talk to Kevin Phillips. He's a good guy, said Joe. He just let me tell my story. According to the report, before Gina Quintel was murdered, she told Joe the relationship was over, but gave no explanation and thought Joe should get on with his life. Joe instantly went into a deep depression and began drinking. After repeated calls to Gina, Joe missed all his classes and stayed in his dorm room. Then he did receive a call from Gina. She said she wanted to talk. A little after seven, he brought his motorcycle over the hills from Hamilton to the Covington Arms. Gina Quintel's door was open when he reached the third floor apartment. He saw Gina Quintel face down on the blood-saturated shag rug. He ran over and lifted her into his arms. For several minutes, he rocked her. When anger set in, he pounded on the floor. A short, gray-haired man in a blue bathrobe soon appeared and an older woman trailed behind. Joe panicked and rushed out of the apartment. Once on his bike, realizing the circumstantial evidence, he raced his motorcycle down the interstate to Massachusetts. You know what happened after that, coach. The owner of the hotel tipped off the cops. My clothes were bloody. I'm screwed, coach. No, no, no. There has to be another answer. I'll call Father Gallagher and see if I can stay at St. Bart's here in the city tonight. Can I get out on bail? asked Joe. 
I'll call L.G. Bentley. L.G. is a competent lawyer in Hamilton. I haven't got any money. My parents aren't rich. You know I'm here on a football scholarship. You let me worry about that, said Jones. Just keep your head. Stay here tonight, and we'll solve this thing. Gina, she, she doesn't have any family. I'm sorry, Joe. I'm going to see if I can get over to the medical examiner's office tonight. Travis, his hands still in his coat pockets, walked over to Joe. If you didn't kill her, who did? I don't know, Mr. Thayer. Maybe Coco and his people. Coco? Coco's not that stupid. Well, they say he skimmed money from Gina. I'll talk to Coco, said Jones. I just miss her. I, I don't know why she would just out of the blue break up. Doesn't make any sense. There was no reason for Gina to end it. No reason at all. Tears formed in his eyes again. She loved me. And she simply told you it was over. That's why I was so upset when I saw you, Mr. Thayer. I couldn't believe it. And that's why I came over to see her, to find out why. Why? Jones held his shoulders. He questioned why a hooker, other than the obvious, would instantly become attracted to Joe. Hang in there, Joe. He grabbed the back of Joe's neck, hugged him, and then looked into his dark eyes. Is there anything else you need to tell me? Help me. I'll do my best. Jones turned with Travis and left the cell. He could not look back as Strickland closed the metal bar door and walked behind them down the hall. Matthias, said Strickland. Kip Bosco smoked at the end of the hallway. We could try and get him out tonight. Now, I want him in here now for his own safety. Any ideas on who killed the girl? Somebody hired that hooker, said Jones. You mean to be his girlfriend? Yeah. How do you know this, Matthias? Just a side road theory, George. He pulled them both aside before they approached Kip. It's obvious. Why does some hooker just fall head over heels for him at Club Max? It's just too easy. I've got to find Coco. Well, don't tell Joe that, said Travis. He's devastated as it is. No, I wouldn't tell him that. I'll bet good money that Kip Bosco knows the girl and whether she was paid. Kip exhaled and flicked the ashes onto the cement. Who would want to pay her to be with Joe? Somebody who wanted to kill her and set up Joe, because Joe was set up. One of her johns. Maybe Coco has information. Another hooker. Who knows? We need to see what enemies this girl had. Right now, I'm going to call Clayton Morris and see all of the physical evidence. Do they still have the murder weapon? Well, Kip didn't say. It's not in the report. Thias, I'll take care of calling LG. First and foremost, that kid needs a lawyer. You tell LG I'll be at St. Bart's after I go over to Clayton's office. I'll sleep at the rectory tonight and then meet with Kevin Phillips tomorrow morning to get to the bottom of this. Chapter 5 Gallagher was busy with CYO basketball and said he would meet Jones at Clayton Morris's office later. Jones walked down the dimly lit uneven sidewalk bordering the closed shops. For five blocks he thought somebody was following him. Coco! Where the hell are you? I've got one of my players being held for murder, and he keeps mentioning your name. Who is Gina Quintel? You need to tell me about Gina Quintel. Get back to me right away. He stuffed the cell phone back into his pocket. He spun around and ran back, but he saw no one. Clayton Morris's office was only a few blocks away now. He pulled out his cell again and dialed Joe's dorm. When the line rang, he stepped into the brighter light of a convenience store parking lot. One of the dorm students picked up the central payphone, and Jones asked for Clarence Moody. 
The receiver clunked against the wall as Jones marched outside the store along the magazine racks inside the store windows and glanced at the deli counter. Good evening, this is Clarence Moody. Clarence, this is Coach Matthias Jones. Yes, Coach, what is it? Right away, Jones did not like his condescending tone. It's rather late, you know. Your roommate is in jail, Clarence. Well, perhaps you can enlighten me as to this miscarriage of justice. Joe didn't kill anyone. Well, I have no answers, but I do have questions, said Jones. The car has constantly entered and exited the convenience store parking lot. What is the nature of your inquiry? Jones stared at the phone. This kid was either very smart or arrogant, maybe both. Okay, let's start with this hooker. Oh, let me preface my remarks this way. This afternoon, Joe briefed me on his dealings with the prostitute, Gina Quintel. However, I didn't know this woman existed before this afternoon. He never spoke about it, asked Jones as he stepped from the lot and started down the sidewalk again. Mr. Jones, I believe I just told you that. What's your major there, Moody? My name is Clarence, and my major is completely irrelevant to your questions in this affair. Now I have studying to do, something you're jock would know nothing about. Moody hung up and Jones stared at the phone. He reached the brick facade of the medical examiner's office a few minutes later, but he checked the sidewalk before he pulled open the glass door and stepped into the lobby. The bristly bearded Clayton Morris, bifocals balanced on his nose, emerged from the back observation room corridor. He removed his cap and peeled off his gloves. Hey, Matthias, how long have you been waiting out there? Just got in, Clayton. One of my players is being held for a hooker's murder. I know. Sabota. Come back here. Clayton led him down the hall to a teal tile room and flipped the x-ray panel switch. The black and white matted transparencies brightened. I think he's being framed somehow. Well, his guilt looks pretty convincing to me. Two witnesses found him there with the girl in the apartment, and Sabota had just broken up with the woman, right? Well, she broke it off. I mean, instantly. Jones was tired of rehashing the story. What do you have on your end, Clayton? Clayton spread several black and white photographs across the smooth counter. Look for yourself. These were developed last night. Gina Quintel's long hair was fanned over a blood-soaked white tank top. More blood had splattered over her face in blue shorts. Her body was sprawled across the white shag rug. Jones looked into the older man's beady coal eyes. A single knife wound in the chest. No murder weapon found, and Kevin Phillips's boys looked all around the apartment building. No murder weapon, and nobody around except for Joe. Well, there are some interesting things here. I've checked the angle of the wound, almost straight in. This woman was 5'9". Well, Sabota is 6'4" said Jones. Of course, that all depends on whether the murderer wielded a knife from above, below. How can you say, Clayton? It appears that her death was quick. Punctured the aorta, Matthias. That's why it's so messy. No other signs of struggle. I don't even think this was a spontaneous act in the sense that they were fighting. I might speculate this woman was surprised. She may not even have known what happened. I understand. What else around there? Fifty-seven separate fingerprints and counting. The woman was a hooker. Yeah, all the Johns. Both men turned as somebody knocked on the wire mesh glass door. That would be Father Gallagher. Jones hustled to the door and opened it quickly. 
The orange-haired, blue-eyed Gallagher, gray sweatpants under his dark top coat, strolled inside with his hands in his pockets. Jones did not see his Roman collar. Always the fashion plate, Jim. Gallagher managed to smile as he stepped inside the office. Do you know how cold it is out there? Thermometer dips below 50 and Father breaks out the long underwear or the sweatpants. You better believe it. Father, do you know Clayton Morris? Clayton, pleased to meet you. Jim Gallagher. I see your name in the paper all the time. They come from your office to the funeral home and then to me. I'm the end of the line at St. Bart's. Clayton smiled. Nice to meet you there, Jim. You were saying about Gina Quintel, said Jones. The murder took place between eight and when this guy, Daniels, came upstairs. He lives below. He thinks he's a murder investigator. Daniels saw Sabota with the dead woman. So did a Mrs. O'Toole. Apparently she left a vacation in Arizona. Time then was about 8.50 p.m. It doesn't look good for Sabota. Well, I understand that, said Jones. What about the rest of the apartment? Anything disrupted? No, nothing at all, said Clayton as he sat on one of the metal stools. That's why I say it happened real fast. Jones pushed his hand through his hair. I have to get over there in the morning. Did you find any fibers or on a shag rug of a lady who... Uh, Clayton raised his gray brows and glanced at Gallagher. I'm sorry, Father. Oh, don't worry, Clayton. I've heard it all before. Well, you know, someone had so many people over there in her apartment. If only I had the weapon. At least a six-inch knife. Maybe a hunting knife, serrated. What about Sabota? Blood on him? asked Jones. Washed off, but we found traces on his hands and his clothes. If he stabbed the woman, wouldn't he have been coated or at least his clothes? said Jones. He didn't necessarily have to murder her, Clayton. Yes, that's true. He showered at that hotel in Boston where they found him. And his coat? His coat is gone. He said he threw it in some dumpster along the interstate in Massachusetts. They, of course, emptied the dumpster yesterday. Phillips said it would be near impossible to find the contents. Clayton yawned and both men followed suit. What does uh, Herbert Lane say? asked Jones. I'm surprised he didn't arraign Joe already. Lane actually wanted to talk to you again. He's not convinced Sabota did it. Herbert Lane agrees with me. That's a change. It's usually indict first, ask questions later, said Jones, and Clayton chuckled. Clayton, I'm going to let you get some rest. Clayton washed his hands. He shut off the light switches and grabbed his light-quilted vest and orange ski mittens. He slipped a dark stocking cap over his ears, locked the car at a door, and followed Jones and Gallagher into the lobby. Jones looked out the front side lights. Gallagher's long black Lincoln's engine hummed and exhaust billowed into the freezing air. Jones turned to shake hands with Clayton. He raised his mittens and Jones grinned. Clayton, I appreciate this. Thank you. No problem, Matthias. I know you have a knack for getting to the bottom of things, he said, looking out at the running car. Father, I don't want to say anything, but this isn't exactly the best part of town. What will happen will happen, said Gallagher. I've long ago stopped freezing my backside off. Jones smiled at Clayton, and then they stepped into the cold air. Clayton veered toward a small compact in the side lot as Jones opened the Lincoln's door and slid across the toasty leather seat. The stereo's full sound was reminiscent of his trip to the Prince William Symphony last winter. Jim, Clayton's right. You're lucky somebody just didn't drive off with your car. And I could swear somebody was following me when I walked over here. Oh, Matthias, you worry too much. 
He pulled onto the side street and brought the car quickly in a huge arc, throwing Jones against the door. Jones was always astounded by Galaga's bad driving habits. I need to ask you, Father. I've been trying to get a hold of Coco Stefani. He's not answering your call. No, he's not answering my call, and he's mentioned in the reports downtown linked in with this Gina Quintel. I'll call him. Gallagher pushed a button on his dash, and the phone line rang immediately. There was no message on Coco's cell phone. It just clicked right into the voicemail. Coco, this is Father Gallagher. You need to give me or Matthias a call. We're right in the middle of this investigation involving one of his football players, whom I deem innocent. Call me right away. I think you know that's the right thing to do. Okay, Matthias, tell me about this woman's murder. Well, I think Sabota's being framed. That hooker all of a sudden became his girlfriend. He's just a kid. He was taken in by her, shall we say, her charms. My question is, what was in it for her? Maybe Coco has that answer. Jones is upset that Herbert Lane is on the Sabota case. When one of his players, Larry Resnick, begins speaking about the Sabota case on the campus radio, Jones blows up over the phone at Resnick. Even Sabota's close professor, Travis Thayer, cannot calm down Sabota. Clayton Morris, the medical examiner, has the logistics on the knife involved in the murder of Gina Quintel. The tone of the investigation is about to change as Mr. Daniels sticks his Sherlock Holmes nose into the Quintel murder. I'm Robert P. Fitton telling you that it's quite elementary, my dear Watson, and I will be back next time to watch Mr. Daniels in action as a Sherlock Holmes wannabe. To quote Mr. Holmes, there's nothing more deceptive than an obvious fact. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.